0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. I get to serve as pastor here, excuse me, at Midtown Two Notch. If you're new, if you're a visitor here with us today, we're very glad that you're here, that you chose to worship with us this morning. If you have a Bible near you, hopefully we were able to put one near you. You can go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 142. Again, Psalm chapter 142. We'll be getting there in in a few moments. We're in week two of our series that we're calling The Life of David. Specifically for the first three weeks of this series, we'll be looking into psalms that David wrote, psalms where he is expressing some type of emotion to God. As Christians, if we're going to walk in the fullness of life that God calls us to, we need to not only have a good understanding in our minds of the Bible and theology, but we also must understand what does a a biblical emotional life look like. God doesn't just care about our our physical selves. He doesn't just care about our mental selves. He cares about our emotional selves as well. So we've been looking into this idea in David's life. What does it look like to have a healthy, emotional life from a spiritual standpoint? Last week, we talked about gratitude. That when Christians are not walking in the gift and the blessing of gratitude, we are living in denial of the realities of all the blessings that God has given us. One of the things that I have said is that to, to not walk in emotional wholeness oftentimes looks like us not living in the reality that we currently exist in. Again, last week we talked about not, not embracing, not understanding, not celebrating, not, not allowing ourselves to truly experience gratitude from the blessings that we have. Today, we'll shift and look at the other end of the emotional spectrum. We want to talk about biblical lament. We want to talk about biblical lament. If we are to live in this world, we have to know how to deal with sadness. We have to know how to deal with sorrow. I would define lament as the expression of sadness and sorrow. The expression of sadness and sorrow have a quick question for us today. Does our faith in God, does God himself only benefit us in times when we get, when we're supposed to get together and celebrate because of all the great things that he has done? Or is our faith in God such that it grounds us and roots us with peace and comfort and even joy in the midst of difficult times as well? Does, does the Christian faith have anything to offer us in times of pain? Does the Christian faith offer us anything in times of sorrow, in times of lament, in times of grieving? Is our God irrelevant in those times or does he offer us? And the point that I want to make today is that the Christian who truly walks in faith in God is more equipped and empowered to deal with difficult times than anyone else. That the Christian that actively walks in faith and relationship with God, faith in him and relationship with him is more empowered to deal with and handle difficult times than anyone else. I say that because I know that there are many in the church that if you ask them how they are doing, they have been trained maybe passively and unintentionally trained to say I'm blessed and highly favored. That that is always the reaction and the way that a good Christian should actually respond when someone asks them how they're doing. That we are to respond and express something that sounds joyful all the time. But we see a concept in the Bible of lament, of lamentation. Don't get me wrong, obviously it's good to celebrate the blessings that God has given us. But does being a Christian mean I need to pretend that everything is going well all the time? Is Christianity only relevant in times of joy and celebration, or is it also relevant in times of distress, sadness, disappointment, anger, and frustration? Does the living Christ offer us anything by way of comfort living in the world that we live in? The context for Psalm chapter 142, which I'll get into again in in just a few moments. David, at this point, the prophet has come to him and told him that you're going to be king, but he has not taken the throne yet. Right. His kingdom has not quite been established yet. So he has this promise that he's going to lead the kingdom, but he isn't quite on the throne yet. And the current king, King Saul, is actively looking for him and searching for him to kill him. At that time, if you were a king, you always wanted your son to take the throne after you. David has, a, I mean, Saul has a son named Jonathan who ended up being friends with David. Saul did not want David to take the throne after him. He wanted the dynasty to continue in his legacy. And at the point when David writes Psalms 142 or Psalm 142, he is hiding in a cave from Saul. And it is believed by most biblical historians and theologians that this is the cave that that David was in when Saul was looking for him. And Saul actually came to the exact same cave looking for David. So it is likely that we have insight into the heart and emotions of David as the most powerful man in the land is hunting him down and trying to kill him. And he writes us, or well, he writes this psalm to the Lord. Let's start at verse one. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Verse three, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Verse four, look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains in me. No one cares for my So, in this psalm, we see David processing his emotions to the Lord. We see David processing his emotions to the Lord. If I were to define what I meant when I say processing emotions, I would say appropriately acknowledging, experience, and expressing one's emotions. Appropriately acknowledging, experiencing, and expressing one's emotions. It's accepting life as it actually is is and not living in denial of things being the way that they actually are. Processing one's emotions is the act of accepting reality and allowing yourself to respond appropriately and deal with it appropriately. Ever since Adam ate the fruit in the garden, the curse, as many call it, has set itself up in the earth. There is now pain, there is now suffering, there is now sorrow, there is grief, there is death, there is loss that all of us in this world will have to deal with. There's no getting around it because of the curse of sin. Just like David, you're going to have times where you're experiencing negative and painful emotions in your life. And if you're going to fight for mental and emotional wholeness, you'll need to be able to practice acknowledging, experiencing, and expressing those emotions appropriately now Jesus came to reverse everything that came as a result of sin but right now until he returns to make everything right we have to be able to deal with the world and a creation full of harm and full of loss and this is what we see David doing in verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 142 in his prayer life he is processing his emotions We see in verse 2, he says he pours out his complaint to God and tells God of his troubles. We also see in verse 4, he feels extremely lonely. He said, I'm looking to the left. I'm looking to the right. I don't see anybody that cares for me. He's experiencing what many of us have felt. He also says in verse 4, he uses the term, refuge when he says that there is no refuge for him. The term refuge was often used as a military term. Sometimes it's just used as a term that means a safe place, but it's often used as a military term, which David would have been familiar with because he was a soldier. In battle, a refuge was a safe place, the place that you went to to be safe in the middle of the war. It doesn't mean the war is over. It just means you're in a safe place in the middle of wartime. This was A refuge. David says, no refuge is here for me. He's saying, there is no place that I can go to to find safety in this life. The troubles are everywhere. No matter where he goes, he's going to be experiencing this trouble. The same is true for us oftentimes. No matter where you go or what you try to do, you might try to run away, you might try to get a new job, you might try to change a variety of things, but everywhere you go, maybe you're sensing the trouble in your life is still with you. Maybe you've tried a number of different things to stop feeling or sensing the trouble being there, but like David, there is no place of safety, no no geographical place that you can go to actually escape the troubles of this world. We see David processing his sorrows and his complaints in his prayer life. The opposite of processing emotions and the opposite of expressing our emotions is what I would call suppression. Suppression, excuse me. When we suppress our emotions, it's when we obviously don't appropriately acknowledge, experience, and express what we are feeling at the time. The suppression of emotions is the practice of living a lie. It's not allowing ourselves to fully live as humans because we're afraid to acknowledge the reality and pain and suffering of the human experience. At its core, it's an attempt to create a reality where you live in a world free of pain, grief, and sorrow. You are trying to to, to make this creation, to make, make a world where the reality of the curse of sin does not exist. So we don't acknowledge, we don't express, we don't experience or at least we try not to experience the negative emotions in this life this often looks like finding ways to maybe distract ourselves from the problem numb ourselves from the problem or or maybe maybe just just stop all the tears from coming when you feel them rising up, when when someone talks about the thing that is troubling you, maybe it's it's you trying to change the conversation because you don't want the tears to flow. And listen, I'm not saying you have to cry tears every time you think about something sad, but I am saying if every time you think of something that's sad, you stop yourself from, from allowing those emotions to run their course, you are practicing suppression of your emotions. You are contributing to your own emotional unholeness because you are living a lie. The suppression of negative and painful emotions is a misguided attempt to reverse the curse of sin. I'm going to say that again. The suppression of negative emotions is an unguided, a misguided attempt to escape the curse of sin. It's trying to have heaven on earth. It's trying to, through, through pretending, through denial, through causing ourselves to think about different things, we're trying to act like what we're living is actually heaven when that's not reality. And it will result, you living, trying to live in these two different realities will result in your own mental and emotional unwholeness. We must process our emotions as we see David doing here in the Psalms. And it makes sense that we would try to do this because we weren't created to live in a broken world. So it makes sense that we're going to struggle in how we're going to process it, how we're going to deal with it, because we were made to live in perfect communion and fellowship with God apart from sin and apart from suffering and apart from death. But because of sin, that's no longer our reality. So we're forced to learn how to cope with the pain, with the suffering, with all of the grief And to make matters worse, many have been told by leaders in the church that if they really had faith in God, they wouldn't be feeling this way. That if they were really praying hard enough, then they wouldn't be experiencing these troubles. If you really had faith in God, he would take all those troubles away because God loves you. But the problem is you don't believe him enough. That's what many have taught in the church. Some say the Bible says rejoice in the Lord at all times. So really, if you're experiencing all this sadness, then really you you shouldn't be feeling that. You should be rejoicing. These oversimplifications are extremely damaging and hurtful. We have basically led people to live in denial of the issues that they have. And thus we are perpetuating the problem oftentimes within the church. Within the church, in an attempt to encourage people to keep faith in Christ, we have pushed them further into mental and emotional unhealth. Pretty much any therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist that you talk to would agree that suppressing and ignoring and being in denial of negative emotions, excuse me, is harmful long-term. And listen, I'm not saying you have to think about your sadness and your pain every moment of every day. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But I'm saying if you don't allow yourself to think about it and feel it at all, if you're not allowing yourself to experience at any moment throughout the days, living in a world that's as broken as this world is, yeah. there are things, there are, not, not just things, things in God's creation, but also people that he has created in his image that are enduring so much difficulty in this life. It, it makes no sense not to grieve. It is actually honoring to the creator and the creation when we grieve the brokenness and loss that we see in this world. Grieving is the only reasonable response to all the pain and sorrow that we see in this life. I read an article in Psychology Today this past week where a doctor said that emotions basically serve to give us information regarding our needs and our goals or desires. He said emotions basically serve to give us information about our needs and about our goals and desires. I'll try to give you an example. If you had a desire to be in a long-term relationship with someone, but it ended up not happening that way, you'd have an emotion that reflects that and communicates to you that things are different now, so now we should, you should conduct yourself or live differently as an as a effect or in light of what happened with that relationship. Or if you had a desire for a long-term relationship and 20 years later that relationship is still going well, as you reflect on that, you might have a positive emotion that allows you to appropriately experience and celebrate the good that you have received. And if we suppress our emotions, then our emotions have not yet served to allow us to fully deal with the reality that we have experienced. Let me say that again. If emotions are are serving to, to inform us, and, and, and allow us to appropriately deal with what happens, then if we suppress them, if we ignore them, then it stands to reason that those emotions will still affect us because they haven't accomplished their desired intent. So thus suppressing emotions, I liken it to you shoving something in the closet. I don't know how y'all were as kids when you were told to clean your room. I don't know how saved y'all were when your parents told you to clean your room. I can tell you about some of my tendencies. I see drawers. I know when my parents look in my room, they're coming in. They're probably standing at the door. Most of the time, they're going to stand at the door and look and see what's going on. I got a bed that's up off of the floor that can probably fit a few things. I got a few drawers in my room. I got a closet in my room. Great places for allowing me to continue to do what I want to do without having to do the work of actually dealing with the mess. What I actually do in the work of working through it and handling the mess appropriately. So I might try to jam some stuff in the closet, hold it shut, get it to close. But if you open it, you're going to see it. But if you're opening, you're going to realize this mess wasn't actually cleaned up. You just tried to hide it. This mess wasn't actually dealt with in appropriate ways. You just tried to hide it. And I want to say something that I don't think a lot of people will agree with. Oftentimes, your triggers is because the door is getting open on your suppressed emotions. Oftentimes, the things that trigger you over and over again, I'll give you an example of that. You ever been in a friendship or, or some type of very meaningful relationship with a loved one, and they did something to offend you, but you didn't want to say anything about it, because, you know, I mean, you should just get over it. You don't really want to talk to them about it. You don't want to go through the process of, of finding healing there. And then they do something else that bothers you. And they do something else that bothers you. And now your friendship is such that y'all don't talk about this type of stuff. right? Y'all don't really deal with this type of stuff. And then they do one thing. It's not even that big of a deal. And you're yelling at them. They open the door. You couldn't hold it closed anymore. And you got triggered because you have negative emotions that you didn't deal with. You have negative emotions that you did not process. So now you're yelling at your family member. You're yelling at your friend, you're yelling at your spouse, you're yelling at your children. You're blowing up on whoever it is because you've been trying with everything you got to hold that door closed, but you keep putting more things in it, and eventually it's going to fly open. And we'll be triggered because we don't process our emotions as we should. It is my experience in my life and others that I have counseled and advised that much of our emotional and mental unrest comes from our tendency to suppress our emotions, to jam them into the closet. Those emotions that have not accomplished their desired intent still harm us. Just because you pretend like they're not there doesn't mean they're actually not there. I want to read verse 5, but first let me tell you what my goal is for the rest of our time together. I want to lay before us from the word of God how our God and our faith in him actually empowers us to be able to process our negative emotions more than anyone else on the planet. I want to start with verse five. Look at what David says. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. So David is in this war, or at least he's being hunted by a king and his army. So for all practical purposes, he's in this war. He has many things against him. He has Saul against him. The brokenness of this world, the curse of sin is at his doorstep right now, right? The the sinfulness of this king that he would want to harm David who hasn't done anything wrong to him. David is dealing with all of this. He has all these things against him, but he also has a refuge, David says, in verse 5. Now, remember, in verse 4, he said he had no refuge. So in verse 4, we have to understand that he's talking about no physical place that he can go where he's actually going to experience safety from everything that, he, that is against him. But in verse 5, he says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He's saying there's no physical place I can go to hide from Saul, who, who is king, who has all these soldiers. He doesn't have a place, but he has a person. He has one that can go with him wherever he goes. that is a refuge from him, for him, excuse me. His refuge is the one that is always near, that is powerful, that is mighty, that is caring, that is compassionate, and he goes and pours out his complaint to God. That is how he runs to his refuge. I want to make sure I say that very clear. As we see earlier in the passage, he is going to God. What is he doing as he runs to this refuge? He says he's pouring out his heart to God. He's pouring out his his complaint. He's giving all of his troubles to God. He's doing like we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your anxieties. That word can also be translated cares. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. He says casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. You also see in Psalm 62, verse 8, another psalm written by David. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You see a command, pour out your heart before him. Now, if you gave me a glass of water and told me to pour it out, you would be expecting me to empty it. You would be expecting me to pour some of it out. You will be expecting me to empty it. What what the psalmist is saying here, David, what he's saying is that when we go to God and give him our hearts, we give him everything. Which means it's essential that you must process your emotions if you actually have the type of prayer life that God calls you to have. Because you are pouring it all out. You can't be emptying and pouring out your heart to God and casting all your cares on him if you got all your cares in your closet if you have hidden them from yourself and lived in denial of your true emotional state, not only are you hindering your own emotional and mental rest and peace, but you're also limiting your prayer life to something that's extremely superficial. You're also limiting your prayer life. You don't have a deep and rich prayer life. If you, if you live in denial of all the negative emotions that you experience, let's be honest, your prayer life is weak. It's very weak and it's not doing what it is intended to do. And your relationship with God is not what it's intended to be because you're treating God as, as an acquaintance. You know how it is with the acquaintances that you don't really share any of the deep stuff with. You just, you just share with them the superficial stuff. You maybe have some friends that you actually deal with and share the deep stuff with, but with your acquaintances, hey, how you doing? Will you bless me? Hey, God, we just, we just ask for a general blessing today. We don't want to go into anything deep. We treat God as an acquaintance, and he comes desiring to be a friend to us. Let me be as direct as I can be. If you show me a Christian who was not in the habit of processing their emotions, I'll show you a Christian with a weak and shallow prayer life. Look at what David said in verse 2. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. This is a side note. This could be his own sermon on his own, but I'm just going to say it here and I'm going to leave it alone. A complaining Christian is a Christian with a misguided prayer life. A complaining Christian is just someone with a misguided prayer life. The person in your life or maybe you yourself who has a, who's in the habit of complaining to everyone they come in contact with, they're just directing their prayer life to the wrong person. David says, I complain to God. When I need to vent, I vent to God. When I need to just get it out, I go to him. I cast my cares and my anxieties on him, and I bring my complaints to him. Much of our uncontrolled complaining is because we don't have a relationship with God where we trust him enough and believe that he is real enough such that we go to him with all of our troubles and all of our cares. He is the one that we ought to go to first. I'm not saying you don't vent to other people. I'm not saying that there aren't other people that you should be confiding in. I'm asking you, who do you see as your refuge? Who is your safe place that you can bring the difficulties of your life to, that you can come to with the distress, with the heartache, with the pain, with the feelings of abandonment, with the difficulty that's going on in your family right now? with the lost loved one that you're not sure how to grieve when you're not sure how, exactly how to grieve their loss. Who is your refuge? Self-preservation is widely regarded as one of the basic instincts of human beings. Some refer to it as a fight-or-flight response. You will, extinct, you will instinctively do whatever you believe will take care of you and help you to either be better or feel better. You will instinctively do that. Whatever you feel like helps preserve you, helps you to be okay, helps you to feel okay. That's what you're going to run to in times of trouble, in times of distress. I want to point out... That we either see God as our refuge and our safe place, or we see something else as our refuge and our safe place. Everyone in here has a refuge, something that you run to, something that you turn to when life is difficult, when you feel like there's, no, there's nowhere, no place you can go. All of us have something that we turn to with our pain, grief, and our heartache. For some of us, our refuge is us trying to pursue what I'll call instant gratification. Instant gratification. We'll seek instant gratification as a way of suppressing our emotion and actually pursuing a refuge outside of God. Okay, God, I don't really, I can't get away from the pain. I can't get away from the thing that's difficult, so I now want to find something that just makes me feel good in the moment. Now I want to find something that helps me to elevate my mood a bit in the moment. So for some of us, that looks like food. For some of us, that looks like food. It looks like, or or consumerism in general, where we're just trying to acquire things because that makes us feel better. Gluttony is when we place faith in food to do for our souls what only God can do. The Bible doesn't have a problem with feasting in the Bible. There are lots of feasts. God institutes feasts in the Bible. Jesus tells his disciples how they are to interact when they're at a feast in the Bible. the God is not against feasting and enjoying it in a way that celebrates and appreciates him. Our God is against gluttony when that food now becomes our God. And when we need refuge, when we need solace, when we need peace of mind, we run to food before we run to God. Some people call it, what do they call it, comfort food? If comfort food is the primary way that you deal with difficulty in your life, you are a glutton, biblically speaking. Sometimes we run to food, some, sometimes we run to shopping, or if I, when I buy things, I feel better. That's going to let me deal with the difficulties and the grief in my life. For some people, it's not that. Maybe it's social media or internet. So many of us, when we have quiet moments, we instinctively pull out our phone. It's like, I, I do it. I hadn't even thought about the fact that I just did that. I hadn't even thought about the fact that I just did that. And if you're anything like me, at times when you're not feeling great, maybe you haven't fully processed through why you're feeling the way that you are, I will scroll on my timeline on social media, hoping to find something that maybe makes me feel good or makes me feel more excited, something that makes me happy, and I'm scrolling, and I'm looking for refuge, and it looks like scrolling on my phone. It looks like scrolling through my timeline. On social media, we're stressed out, we're anxious, we're sad, we just need a little bit of a boost and we're hoping that we'll find that maybe on social media, on the internet, or whatever it is. Maybe this YouTube. Often unaware that we are grabbing a screen whenever we don't know what to do with the grief and pain that we're running away from. For some people, what we run to is sex. The enemy loves to feed us the lie that you know what will make you really feel really good? If you were with them. You know what make you feel a lot better? If you were with them. If you went to this website. That's what we really mean. You, you, you had a long, hard day. You can take one look. Just think about what it would be like if you were with this person. Let me go to their Instagram account and look at their pictures. Because that would help me to feel better in this moment. It's a coping mechanism. It's a search for a refuge, and it's a bad one. It's a troublesome and problematic one. So as we're looking to find our refuge in the suppression of our emotions, we often do that by seeking instant gratification, but also we might do that by seeking distraction. If I just put myself in my career and I get real successful, maybe that'll take my mind off of everything that's broken in my world, that's broken about me, and I won't have to think about it. Maybe if I just make sure my to-do list always has a lot of things on it that'll keep me busy, then I don't have to have those quiet moments when the sadness comes and I have to deal with what's in the closet. And I'll find my refuge in my to-do list and my accomplishments and the fact that I can get things done. When I feel the, the brokenness, the loneliness, the heartache, the sadness, then I'll just find something to take my mind off of it. Sometimes we run to busyness and accomplishments. Sometimes we run to entertainment. If you're in this room and you always have to have a show that you're binge watching, you need to ask yourself some real questions. You need to get real with your heart and real with your soul. If you can't, but you can't help but to have something that when you get, that, you know that time in between when you get off work and when you go to bed, maybe in between your, before or after you have a meal, and that time is you, that you just have to fill with something. You just can't be quiet. You just can't be still. You just can't rest and be with yourself because you know yourself has some stuff in the closet. That's seeking refuge in Netflix. That's seeking refuge in entertainment. You can't spend time alone with yourself, so you have to fill it with something that can hold your attention because you're trying as hard as you can to not allow your attention to go to the things that are troubling you. We find refuge in entertainment. So we look for instant gratification. We look for things to distract us, and we look for things to numb us. We look for things to numb us. Even if I find something that makes me feel good, the pain hasn't gone away. The pain is still there. What can I do? I just don't want to feel it anymore. I just don't want to deal with it anymore. So we look to find refuge in things like alcohol that can numb us or any type of substance abuse. One of the things that I like to tell people is that oftentimes when people are abusing substances, people will look at that substance abuse from the outside and say, see, that person has a problem. The problem is that they're abusing substances. But many people who are abusing substances, they had a problem before they started abusing the substance, and that's why they started abusing the substance in the first place, because they had a problem that they didn't know how to deal with, so they just ran to something that would numb them so they wouldn't have to feel. So they wouldn't have to feel it. Many who abuse substances are just on the run. On the run from the curse of sin in this world. On the run from all the brokenness and all the pain and all the grief that a broken world will cause us to experience. We numb oftentimes through substance abuse. We numb through denial. I'm just going to try to be numb by pretending like it's not true. Like it's not there. Maybe you grew up under the belief that admitting that you're hurting or admitting that you're sad or admitting that you're grieving means you we- you're you weak. So you just live in denial of it. So you just pretend like it's not even the case, like you don't have any sadness, like you're not still grieving that thing that happened months ago or years ago because you want to be numb to it. Maybe you've heard things like you need to man up or you need to woman up and just keep pushing. Maybe you don't know how to begin processing your emotions. If that's you, I want to let you know one of the things that I really wanted to do today. We'll have a resource available to you on your way out today. It's just a, uh, I think we call it the emotional wheel. It's helpful for giving emotional vocabulary. I want to explain what I mean when I say that. It's helpful for giving emotional vocabulary. Oftentimes, we are so used to suppressing our own emotions, we don't know how to talk about what we're actually feeling. This was the case for me definitely up until I was i mean, probably at least 30 years old. My wife will ask me how I'm doing. Oh, not good and any negative emotion it was either i'm angry or i'm not good i had no vocabulary to be able to help me explain and work through and process through what i'm actually feeling at the time my wife helped me work through what my emotions actually were i eventually started seeing a the therapist which is extremely has been extremely helpful for me continues to be extremely helpful for me as well make sure if you're if you're in a place where you're like i don't really know how to begin the process what i am going through having language that accurately describes and defines what it is that you're feeling i believe will be helpful for you in your process it has about 90 different terms on it that you might use to express how you're feeling some positive and some negative so now you don't have to just say I'm feeling down maybe you can say I'm feeling despair I'm feeling hopeless, I'm feeling disgusted maybe with others or maybe with myself maybe you say I'm I'm grieving now you can have precise language to help you truly experience, express and acknowledge the feelings that you have that result from living in a fallen world one of the things that I found personally to be very therapeutic for this, which seems to be what David is doing here as well, is writing, writing about what we are feeling. There's at least two people in this room right now. I don't know if they're still mad at me about this or not, but when I met with them, I, I told them, I think one of the things that you need to do is write down what you're feeling about this. And I mean everything that you have felt and thought about this. And generally speaking, the response is, I don't want to do that, number one, so give me something else. And number two, after it happens, there's at least two people in this room that have told me, hey, I actually started feeling like something was lifted off of me when I started doing that. And the thing I believe that was lifted off of them was the weight of trying to live in two realities, one that's real and one that's made up. One that's actually the case and one that they pretended creating this reality is not how we were intended to live I often recommend writing, especially writing poetry. It allows you to be free to go whatever direction that you want, but it also causes you to have to think deeply about whatever it is to actually write it out. That is something that's been very therapeutic for me. It's actually the first thing that my counselor recommended for me to do to help me to begin to work through my emotions. And I felt the exact same thing. I mean, 10 minutes into writing, I started feeling like I feel better already. I feel lighter already. I know all this is extremely difficult at times. One of the things that I'm so grateful for, one of the things I'm so grateful for is that in the Bible, not just in the Bible, but God himself gives us, empowers us to be able to deal with the difficulty of dealing with painful emotions, that our God actually gives us the strength to be able to deal with it. Well, you might ask, well, how does he give us the strength? Number one, he gives us his presence. He gives us his presence. He literally gives his Holy Spirit in us to empower us to live as he has called us to live. I would say even we don't we don't even pray alone, right? The Holy Spirit is with us when, to empower us to go to God in prayer as we ought to. For some of you might be thinking, well, I don't want to do the work of dealing with all this difficult stuff. I want to encourage you in those moments to to tell yourself, to remind yourself, no, no, no the Holy Spirit lives in me. He empowers me to live as God calls me to live, including casting all of my cares on God because he cares for me. I want to encourage you at at that moment, those moments, talk to yourself, remind yourself, preach to yourself. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit, the very presence and power of God lives in me. He is with me through this. He empowers us through his presence. His presence is with us. Psalm chapter 34, verse verse 18 says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted." And saves the crushed in spirit. He is near the brokenhearted. The enemy will do so many things to have us believe that when you're going through times of difficulty, times of suffering, that it must mean that God's not there that it must mean that God has forsaken you, God has abandoned you, otherwise there's no way he would have let this happen to you. That's what the enemy would have for you to believe. I gotta remind us all of, suf- of something that when we're trying to figure out who God is and what God's character is like, we don't let our suffering tell us who God is, we let God's suffering tell us who uh, God is. If he went to the cross and died and had nails put in his hands and nails put in his feet and he didn't abandon us on his worst day, how can we possibly believe that he would abandon us on our worst day. He has proved that he is the God that does not abandon his people. He is with us. You need to remember this. If you have difficulty like me dealing with a lot of the pain, dealing with a lot of the grief, dealing with and processing a lot of the painful emotions, you need to remember that God is the, actually the closest person to you in those moments. He's not far from you. He's closer to you than anyone else is. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He doesn't leave the brokenhearted. He is near. He is with us. And as he is with us, he empathizes with us. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means one who knows grief. It's the same Hebrew word that refers to Adam knew his wife, Eve. It's a word that can refer to an intimate knowledge with something. He said he's a man of sorrows. He knows grief. He gets grief. He understands abandonment. His disciples all of them left him when he was taken away to be crucified. He understands pain and suffering. His first cousin was beheaded by the king by King Herod during his life. He understands difficulty. The father saw his son be executed and condemned and hung naked publicly for all to see. He knows pain. He knows sorrow. He knows loss. He understands when we are having difficult times, one of the things that we desire more than anything else is for somebody to be there that just gets it, that just understands, that knows grief, that knows pain, that knows what we are going through. Nobody gets you better than God does. And he is with us. He is with you every step of the way. He's with you with every tear that you've ever cried, every tear that you will cry. He is with us. Not only is he with us, when you are saved and you become a believer, not only do you get adopted into the family of God and, and get a new father, but you also get new brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying the church is perfect at this, but every time the church actually lives and behaves as we are called to live and behave, we get a family of brothers and sisters to go through this life with us. Our God understands that, yes, we need a relationship with him more than anything else, but we also need support here and now from people. And one of my favorite things to see in our different life groups and in our church community is how many times we have been there for each other through difficult times. Suffering is horrible. It's horrible. One of the things that I like to say is the only thing worse than suffering is suffering alone. And our God provides for us not only himself but a family of brothers and sisters that can walk through these difficult times with us and provide us with support and with love during these difficult times. So he gives us himself. And he never leaves us, and he's always with us. He gives us other people in different seasons of our lives, but also he actually gives us what we've been searching for the whole time because he's going to come back and actually give us heaven on earth and it's not going to be this make-believe creation that we've come up with. It's not going to be us being in denial of the act, of the actual state of reality. It's not going to be the result of us just clinging to some Christian cliches like just hold on and everything's going to be okay. No, he's going to come back with a sword in his hand with all power given to him and he's going to come and reign and establish his kingdom on the earth and you'll never cry another tear again and you'll never be abandoned again and you'll never be hurt again and you'll never have family drama again and your body will be whole and all of your brothers and sisters in faith will be with him and he will make us whole. You don't have to try to pretend that heaven is here now. He's going to bring heaven here. You just hold to his hand in the meantime and trust him to give you the strength to deal with whatever it is that comes this way. He is mightier than the curse of sin and he is coming back and he will destroy it. And my prayer for us as a church is that we be able to find true hope, true hope in him. That the brokenness of this world will not lead us just only to despair and to hopelessness, but it will lead us to cling more closely to our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the anointed one sent to reverse the curse. So we don't live in pretend reality. We don't, we don't believe untrue things about this creation. We place our faith in the one who's coming to make all things new, and we'll establish a new creation because this one's been tainted by sin and suffering and death. We cling to him. He gives us what we need. He gives us healing for the broken, relief for the hurting, tears of joy in the place of tears of sadness. He's going to take us home one day and there'll be no more need for coping strategies. There'll be no more need for support groups. There'll be no more need for lament because he's going to take it all away. Before I close, when we transition to communion, I just want to read the lyrics of this song. It's a a hymn, a hymn called What a Friend We Have in Jesus Just as a final encouragement before I pray for us, it reads, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you for being present. Thank you for being powerful, for being able. Father, this is a difficult call to cast all of our cares on you, to pour out our hearts to you in prayer. But God, would you strengthen us? Would you give us courage through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, Father, to take the steps to process our emotions to you, to complain to you, to vent to you, to get it all out to you? Because we know that you're real, that you're there, that you care. And we can place our hope in you. Father, we thank you for all of these things. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.